Our scripture reading this morning is Psalm 32. We'll be looking at all 11 verses this morning. That's found on page 462 in the uh, Pew Bibles that are provided for you in the rows. Um, if you do not have your own copy of, script, of the scriptures. Now, while you're turning there, uh, just uh, one update I forgot to give. Uh, um, We've been praying earlier uh, this year for Bob Ellis's mother, who had a f- significant fall uh, at a basketball game and uh, had a head injury, and she is actually doing very well, uh, and uh, glad to see the Ellis's back with us this morning after uh, being over in New Jersey to visit uh, both she and her husband uh, over the weekend, and we certainly praise God for his sustaining hand at work uh, in protection of Bob's mother during this difficult time. Psalm 32, beginning at verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let us pray together. Father, I pray that you would grant each of us a sensitivity to the work of your Spirit in our lives. This is the word inspired. This is the word authoritative. This is the word that we so desperately need in our lives. And so, Lord, as we submit ourselves to the truth, We pray that you would do your good work in our lives for our good and for your glory. Lord, strip away the idols of our hearts and open our eyes that we would behold wondrous things from your word. That your name would be glorified among us. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I've shared this quote by A.W. Tozer with you numerous times over the past couple of years, and I bring it up again because I believe it is, it is a significant quote as it relates to the importance of our having an accurate understanding of who God is as he's revealed himself in, our word, in his word. This is the quote, what, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Makes sense, right? We, 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 we need to have our thoughts about God informed by the Word of God so that our understanding of who God is will shape our lives as it should. It comes back to what He said, how He's spoken clearly to us. 
The, the late pastor and theologian R.C. Sproul once shared a, a, an account about a, a conversation that he and his wife Vesta and a few other pastors had. They were uh, at a conference and they were having lunch together and uh, someone raised the question, what do you think the, the, the biggest problem in the modern church is today? And so uh, the, the pastors went around the table, each sharing their thoughts as to, as, as to what needed to be addressed in order to enable the, the, the modern church to be more healthy. And, and finally, it was silent for a few moments, and then uh, Vesta spoke up, and I'm going to paraphrase what she said. But basically she said this, the, the biggest problem with the church is an idolatrous view of God, which is based on people's view of, of how they think God ought to be, rather than what God has said about himself. And, and that really summed up everything else the other pastors had talked about, but I believe hit the nail on the head. Our biggest struggle, our, our biggest problem, and you can see how this is tied to the Tozer quote, is that tendency in our hearts and our minds to, 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 to imagine a view of God that is more in line with how we want him to be than necessarily what he said about who he really is. Can, can you see how that might be a problem? I think both A.W. Tozer and Vesta Sproul are correct. <laughs> and this does lead to, to, to problems in our Christian life. Many of the things that, that come into our minds when we think about God are, are inconsistent with what God has said about himself. And this is a recipe for disaster. We, we, we must allow our understanding of God to be shaped by his word, all of it. This is essential to, to enable us to stand firm and to be faithful. And this is especially important as it relates to the issues of sin and forgiveness. You, you don't have to be here long before you hear the word gospel said at New Hope. Probably the first day you walked in, you heard somebody mention the gospel. Hopefully you heard the gospel proclaimed in, in your first message here and, and many times since. That, that's a good thing. Emphasizing the gospel is important, but it does not guarantee that it is understood. Sometimes we, we learn the hard way that even though people in, in, in Christian circles, even though we use the same words, that doesn't always mean that people attach the same meaning to those words. And this can be especially devastating as it relates to matters of salvation. We've, we need to get the gospel right. We need to understand both the seriousness of sin, the extent of the work of Jesus Christ to, in securing our salvation, and our utter inability to do anything to earn or to even deserve this gift of salvation that God offers us. Now, as you know, we spent the last two weeks in Psalm 51, David's psalm of repentance for, for the sins of, of adultery and murder. And today, we venture into Psalm 32. This is a, a psalm that, that many believe was written to celebrate the forgiveness that David received from his repentance in Psalm 51. The, the, the title of Psalm 32 is that it is a masculine of David. And, and there's been some debate about what that word means, whether it's a, a statement about a, a, a musical style or, or is it a statement about the, the content of the psalm. 
Some people believe that that meskil means instructive or or contemplative, and, and I think this is actually true. Because that is certainly what we see in these psalms. These 11 verses give us life-changing truths about God's mercy. And and we will tackle this wonderful psalm under four headings. First of all, we're going to consider the joy of receiving God's forgiveness. Secondly, we're going to look at David's testimony of restoration. Third, a call to return to God. And fourth, God's instruction to the repentant. And I am praying that God would do at least two things among us this morning. First of all, that he would convict us of our ongoing need for forgiveness through Christ. That that we would not become a people who are blasé about sin. But that we would be quick to repent when sin reveals itself or is revealed in our lives. Perhaps for some of you, it, it, it may be a, a conviction of sin for the first time that, that leads you to saving faith in Christ. But secondly, I pray that God will increase our joy in Jesus. In light of the truths that are revealed in this psalm. God has shown us great mercy. And it is our life's calling to worship him in light of that. So let's look first at verses 1 and 2. The joy of receiving God's forgiveness. It says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, over the last two weeks in our study of Psalm 51, we considered at length the seriousness of sin as revealed in David's adultery with Bathsheba, And also the premeditated murder of her husband, Uriah. Now, rather than immediately confessing his sin and turning back to God, David dug in and hid his sin for about a year. In verses 3 through 5 of of Psalm 32, we we will see how how, how hiding his sin affected David. But but David begins the psalm with a much different tone. This psalm of instruction begins with David setting his main point before us. Everything else builds on this. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. Everything else illustrates this. Everything else strengthens this point. Blessed, Hebrew, in the Hebrew is asher, which simply translated means happy. But we need to understand that, that as we see that word blessed used in Scripture, both in the, in the Hebrew Old Testament, but also as you see its corresponding word in the Greek, It's used with a much stronger meaning in relation to the people of God. I've touched on this before, but it bears repeating. Blessed, when used in the Bible, is used to describe the joy that exists for those who have received God's acceptance and favor. There's more in view here than simply a happiness that relates to temporary circumstances. This is a greater happiness, a greater joy that is founded on the knowledge that one has been accepted by God. Don't believe me? Just just consider for a moment the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gives a list of those who are blessed. 
And in many cases, the, the circumstances, the, the temporary circumstances of the blessed don't sound very appealing. Blessed are those who mourn. Huh? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. If we're just talking about temporary circumstances, then that's insane, right? Why would you be happy about that? Blessed are the poor in spirit. As we do what we call word studies from Scripture, it's important that we strive to have an understanding of how a word is used both contextually and culturally. In the context of, of Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, happy certainly could, could fit, given the context, but, but we must keep in mind that, that the joy of forgiveness is a joy that, that is tied to being restored to God as well. It's more than just the news that God has pronounced forgiveness, is what I'm saying. It's, it's the actual reconciliation to God. Remember that psalm? Psalm 51? David's crying out, cover me, wash me, restore to me this joy of my salvation. He wants the giver, not just the gifts. In verses 1 and 2, David picks up on the, on the same parallelism that he used in Psalm 51. He, he uses three words that describe his sin and then three corresponding words to, to describe God's work of forgiveness and redemption. First word he uses is transgression. Forgiven. Sin. Covered. Iniquity, not counted. And even as we read verses 1 and 2, if you were, if you were here two weeks ago, I, I hope that the verses that you heard from Psalm 51 came to mind, especially the, the opening section of the psalm. David writes, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities." See how that's tied to, to 1 and 2 of, of Psalm 32? See the same words, transgression, sin, iniquity. Now remember, David isn't just using synonyms for sin in these psalms, but is giving a description of, of, of the seriousness and the comprehensive nature of sin before a holy God. That word transgressions refers to the guilt that our sin creates. And by guilt, I'm talking about the fact that we are guilty of breaking the law. Spiritual criminals, if you will, deserving of judgment. All sin is against God because it is God who established the law that reveals our sin and need for forgiveness. The word sin, it refers to the fact that we miss the mark of God's standards for his people. Perfection is required. And, and brothers and sisters, not only do we miss the bullseye, we don't even hit the target. 
In fact, that, 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 that Hebrew word that, that for sin, it actually describes an archer who's, who, who's pulled back his bow and taken a shot. And the arrow doesn't fly over the target, but it's fallen well short. That's that image there. there, there there's a goal, a target, and, and, and it's like we're shooting with a broken string. It, it barely leaves the bow. It doesn't come close to the target. That's a, that's a pretty powerful image of, uh, of what God requires and what we are unable to give. Iniquity is a reference to the absolute corruption that sin has on us. Every area of our lives is still under that influence of sin. And, and there's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to remedy the situation. We need to be rescued. All that's review, right? I mean, this is exactly what, Saul, what David wrote in Psalm 51. Now, the parallel actions that God does for the sinner are also more than simply synonyms. David writes, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Forgiven it describes a burden that's been lifted. If transgression describes our legal guilt, so forgiveness describes the burden of the law being lifted from us. The, the demand that our guilt be punished. It describes being legally justified in the sight of God. David goes on to, blessed is the man whose sin is covered. Covered is a reference to that atoning work of God for our sin. For, for sins to be atoned for, blood needed to be shed. This is a direct parallel to Psalm 51 where David writes, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Now we learn that, that hyssop was the brush-like plant that was used to administer the blood of the lamb. Uh, first at the Passover, when, when God delivered the people from Egypt, then throughout Israel's history, history in administering blood through worship and purification ceremonies. And, and that administration of blood was a picture of what Jesus would accomplish through his shed blood. It atones for our sins. It covers them in the ultimate sense. And knowing that our sins have been covered, paid for by the blood of Jesus, should be the source of the greatest joy in our lives. His sacrifice is perfect and complete. All our sin is covered in Christ. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. Blessed is the man whose sin is covered. Women too. This is us, Christians. They've been atoned for. There is great joy in this knowledge, dear ones. But David's not done. Blessed it is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Now, some translations use the word impute instead of counts. And, and in the Hebrew here, it's, it's basically an accounting term. Now, tax season's coming up, so accounting should be something we're all aware, aware, well aware of. But, but counting involve, accounting involves a, a reflecting of keeping records. Nothing escapes God's notice. Every sin we commit, every failure to do what we ought to do in a given situation. The, the record of guilt is long indeed. So blessedness can, can only happen if that record is canceled out. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul describes in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, where he writes, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, talking about Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Thus, 
he set aside, nailing it to the cross. See that parallel? The, the, the record of our iniquity was credited to Christ when he died on the cross for our sins. When he bore God's wrath that we deserved. He, he bore the punishment, the, the record, every, every lie you've told, every lustful thought you've had, every, every response in anger, the worst things that you have ever done. That you wouldn't want anyone else in this room to have any idea that you were a part of. If you are in Christ, he bore the guilt and he canceled out that record against you when he died on the cross for your sins. Blessed is the one for whom the record of sin against them has been canceled out through the work of Jesus for us. Your iniquity the guilt that, that results from sin infecting every aspect of your life has been canceled out through the faithfulness of Jesus. Christian, I want you to hear that word blessed or blessed in, in a whole different light today. Because of Jesus, you are an object of God's favor. Through Christ, the burden of our sin has been removed. His blood atones for our sin. And the record of wrongs committed against God has been blotted out forever. Blessed is the one who has been reconciled to God through the faithfulness of Christ. I'm going to come back to this at the end, but I, but I want to throw this out there before I move on. On the flip side, cursed, cursed is the one who has not responded in faith to Christ. These are eternal matters, dear ones, that we have been entrusted with. Now, I probably should have said this at the beginning. <laughs> Because you're probably looking at your watch thinking, okay, that's a long time on point one. <laughs> the, 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 the focus this morning primarily is on verses one and two as well as verse five. Because I believe this is the, the, the focus of the psalm or the thrust of the psalm is found in these verses. Just as we saw that Psalm 51 has strong gospel overtones, so does Psalm 32. Everything that David describes in verses 1 and 2 is true of those who are in Christ. And in verses 3 through 5, David actually tells us what led up to this blessed forgiveness that he describes in verses 1 and 2. His testimony of reconciliation or restoration verses 3 through 5 David says for when I kept silent my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long for night and day your hand was heavy upon me my strength was dried up by as by the heat of summer selah I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Now, I, I mentioned in passing earlier that it was at least a year between David's sins uh, to when he was confronted by Nathan the prophet. In Psalm 51.8, David alludes to, to the bones that God had broken in relation to, to, to the weight or the conviction of sin. But, but in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4, David peels back even further the, the burden that, that he was under because of his sin. For when I kept silent, before he admitted and confessed his sin, in other words, during this time of hiding it, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night... Your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. 
Now, this is a a vivid picture of a life weighed down by guilt and shame. If you've ever gone through a a season of rebellion against God, you, you likely know exactly what David is describing here. Remember early in my Christian life, I had such a season, and I remember vividly the the sense of sorrow and shame that engulfed me after a prolonged rebellion against God. I I remember waking up most mornings in, in tears because of the shame I felt because of my sinful choices and that it had gone on so long. Even though I had a a full schedule, a a job to do, things to to, to take care of, I had no desire, no energy, no strength to do the things that were required of me. Now, now some might say, oh, well, you were just depressed. No, I I wasn't depressed in, in, in the clinical sense. I know what that is like. I knew exactly why I was miserable. I was miserable because I had thumbed my nose in the face of God's grace and mercy and and pursued a life that reflected more what I looked like before I was a believer than after I confessed Christ as my Lord and Savior. I had embraced a lie that my sin was so significant that there was no way that God would ever Forgiving me for turning my back on him. I felt lost. And it was not until my eyes were open to the truth that I turned to God seeking forgiveness. In that season of sorrow, even as God had, as David puts it, put his hand heavy upon me, Looking back, I realized that I was experiencing God's loving discipline. Unconfessed sin and rebellion against God should lead a true believer to feel guilty, to feel sad, to to even feel despair. Why? Because God does not want us comfortable in our sin. He has better things for His people. The the new nature that we've been given through Christ is inconsistent with the old nature that we've been set free from. That old nature once ruled us, but the power has been broken. Through God's grace and the help of the Holy Spirit, we're, we're called to put to death those old desires day after day. Now, it is very likely that there are some among us this morning who who may be experiencing such conviction from God. This could be true whether you are a believer or not. And in both situations, the, the, the motive of God is the same. It is His loving hand at work to bring you to repentance He he wants to open our eyes to the fact that that, that no matter what sin may promise you, it will never, ever, no, never deliver on that promise. Only Christ can satisfy. For the Christian, God is convicting you to restore you to fellowship with Him. This is so important for our spiritual growth and joy in this life is that we are, are consistently, as we are aware of it, turning away from our sin and turning to God in faith. faith. For, for the non-Christian, God is calling you to himself to receive the, the forgiveness and restoration that only he can supply. Now, at the end of verse 4, we, we find the first of three salahs, or, or selah. People pronounce it differently. And, and, and selah is a word that, that shows up in several of the Psalms. And like maskil, there, there are a variety of opinions on, the, on what the word actually means. Many scholars agree that, that it indicates a pause between 
verses. Some believe that it's, it's for the sake of, uh, of uh, uh, for the choir director, so they know where to stop or, or where to, to, to have a dramatic pause. Others believe that, that, that this pause is, is also there to, to provide a time of reflection on the verse that precedes it. And honestly, in studying Psalm 32, I, I, I'm, I am convinced that, that the pauses are there for our reflection. Verses 3 and 4, Paul is, or excuse me, David is, is describing the weight of his sin and the conviction that he felt under the heavy hand of God. Pause, stop, think about it, reflect on that. Heavy stuff, right? But then he moves to verse 5. Now, now that we are sufficiently appreciating the seriousness of the situation, David writes, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah! So, so we've stopped to consider the weight now we stop to, to, to consider David's response. I woke up. I need to confess my sins. I, I need to seek reconciliation. I need a, a Psalm 51 moment, if you will. God's hand was heavy upon him. He admitted his sin. And look what happens immediately. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. David lived for many months under the weight of his guilt and shame. But when he sought God's forgiveness, he received it. He, he knew that only God could provide what he needed. And at the end of verse 5, we find the second Selah. Stop and reflect. I was heavy under the weight of sin. I sought God's forgiveness and he gave it. Don't just pass on to verse 6. Let that sink in. I started by pointing out how important it is for us to let the Bible speak for God as it relates to the seriousness of sin and forgiveness. There are times when we are so deceived by the weight of our sin and our guilt that, that like me, as a young man, we believe there's no way that God could forgive us. But here we find David, a man who committed two sins for which there was no sacrifice provided for in the Mosaic law. Turning to God, seeking forgiveness, and receiving it. Your sins, brothers and sisters, are neither a surprise to God, nor are they outside of His ability to redeem you. And we must remember that. It is a twisted, perverted pride that causes us to think that, that, that somehow, when we've blown it, that God is both unwilling and unable to forgive us. Now, this does not free us up to live as we want. Oh, let's sin a lot so God's grace will abound. No. This reveals to us the power of God and the ability of God to, to forgive and redeem his people and should lead us to a greater devotion to God. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. When is the last time we have confessed sin to God, brothers and sisters? Stop and reflect on what David did and God's response. Verses 1 and 2 cannot be true if there is not a verse 5. I confessed my transgressions to the Lord. And he forgave the iniquity of my sin. 
Brothers and sisters, the the gospel of Jesus Christ makes this even clearer today. God delights in forgiving and reconciling the sinner to himself, but it has to happen on his terms. Proverbs 28.13 states, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. This is exactly what David relates in Psalm 32. And it is also what Christ offers sinners today. We're called to admit our sin and to throw ourselves completely on the mercy of God. There may be someone here this morning who needs to follow David's example. You are well aware of the weight of God's hand upon you. He wounds you to, to show you your need for the remedy that only he can supply. Confess your sin. Turn to Jesus in faith. And he will forgive the iniquity of your sin. He doesn't do this on the, on, on the basis of anything that you've done, but on the basis of his own loving, merciful character. And his orientation towards those who are his is always one of love and for our good. Let that sink in, dear church. In verses 6 and 7, David calls the people to respond to God in the same way that he has. He says, therefore, let Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. These are David's application, if you will, these verses. In verse 6, we find a call to to turn to God immediately before the time of judgment comes. That's the rush of great waters that David is referring to. And and we can understand his judgment in two ways. First of all, we can think of God's judgment on the nation of of Israel, which was temporary circumstances. We we see this often in the Old Testament, but but it could also be understood as a reference to God's ultimate judgment as well. I think that phrase, when you may be found, indicates that, that David has the ultimate judgment in view. But, but it certainly could also represents temporary, represent uh, temporary judgment as well. But the point is simple. When we have sin, we should repent quickly. David describes the weight of God's hand on him so heavily because David had went months rejecting the the, the conviction and and the work of God. You think that he didn't know adultery was a sin when he committed adultery? Of course he did. You think he didn't know it was wrong to, to have Uriah killed? Of course he did. But he hid those things. He dug in. And the end result is, is when we resist the conviction of God in our lives, we become calloused. And, and so when those chickens finally come home to roost, pardon my southernism, the, the, the price that is paid is far greater than if we had just humbled ourselves before God to begin with. Now there are people here who will stand up and shout amen because they can look at seasons of their own lives and say, oh, if I had only turned back sooner. When we have sinned, we should should immediately repent. And and honestly, I I think we, as as the contemporary church, we have have developed a pretty lax view of repentance. And and even the return of Jesus and and the judgment that will accompany that as well. God's loving patience delays the return of Christ. Christ. Yet we treat that as an excuse to pursue our own agendas. This a la carte Christianity where we pick and choose what we like about the Bible is is inconsistent with the Christianity of Scripture and what we see lived out in the New Testament. 
Verse 6 is, is clear that, that, that people should seek God at a time when he is accessible because there will be a time when it will be too late. The Lord, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, gives the same message. He says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. You have this great offer to, for God to, to give forgiveness to those who will turn to him. But they have to do it on God's timetable. There will be a time when he will not be found in that way any longer. And that should sober us. Not for our own salvation. We are secure in Christ. But that should sober us in our view of those who are outside the faith, right? There should be a burden there. We, we call all people to, to turn to Christ in faith. Because if we believe the Bible, we understand there'll be a time when it's too late. Too late to, to receive the gift that we've been given too late to, to understand the, what true blessedness is, being restored to God. Too late to flee to the cross. David calls his readers to follow his example and to, to receive God's forgiveness before judgment comes. Because once that judgment comes... It's only those who have been forgiven by God that will find sanctuary and be preserved. Verse 7, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Now, I think it is very significant as we con consider this season from David's life and, the, and these psalms as they relate to one another. That, that David first describes how he hid himself from God. But as Psalm 32 comes to an end, we find him hiding in God. What, what a beautiful offer to even the most wretched sinner. We who once hid from God in shame through Christ now hide ourselves in him in redemption. Verses 8 through 11, we find God's instructions to the repentant. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Now verses 8 and 9, David's writing from the perspective of God speaking to his people. It's a promise to lead and guide his people. It's a call for, for the people to be faithful and to be yielded under God's watchful eye. In verse 9, he, he, he warns the people not to be like unreasonable animals that, that have to be led around lest they wander off. It's a call to be yielded to God's authority and His leading over His people. It's a call for people to draw near to God and to receive instruction rather than following the sinful urges that once dominated our hearts. I mean, isn't that what animals do? Animals follow their instincts? God says, no, you're, you're different than the animals. You don't, you don't need me to attach bit and bridle and drag you where you need to be. I have redeemed you. Yield yourself to me. These verses remind us, brothers and sisters, that God's ways are always best. The, the wicked will ultimately experience sorrow, while the repentant will experience God's love and joy. These verses are a call to rejoice in our blessedness, those of us who have been reconciled to God. 
What comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Are your thoughts about sin and forgiveness, about, gospel, about the gospel, about redemption, about faith, about obedience, about forgiveness, are they in line with what God has said about himself? There is one way to be reconciled to God, and that is through faith in Christ. There is no plan B. This was God's plan from the foundation of the world, even before he created the world. God offers the forgiveness that we see described, this blessed forgiveness through Christ. All who will believe cannot be earned. Where does your faith lie this morning, church? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for these psalms from an ugly season in the life of King David. How you took his unfaithfulness and have used it to instruct us and to call us to a greater faithfulness. To, to not only call us to a greater faithfulness, but to call us to a greater faith in you. Because, Lord, we recognize that although we may have never physically committed adultery with our bodies, Lord, there have been seasons where we have done so in our hearts. While we may have never physically killed someone, Lord, we are guilty of, at times, of hate in our hearts. That there are other sins that, that, that we have been enslaved to. There have been seasons where we have loved our sin more than we have loved you. And for all of these things, you call us to, to turn back to you and to experience your forgiveness and your redemption. And so, Lord, we do that this morning, celebrating the fact that, that, that because Jesus made a sacrifice for us, Lord, that we never need to make any sacrifice for our own sins but that we have been redeemed through faith in Christ. But yet as a response, you call us to, to make our lives living sacrifices before you, where we live in such a way that our lives reflect that your glory and your honor truly are the most important things in our lives. Help us to, to rise to that God-sized task, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.